Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because, you know, if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish. Or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps, because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Hey, how you doing? My name is Nolan. I am from Past Gas by Donut Media, the Internet's number one automotive history show. That's right. We talk car history. And this week we are talking about a lesser known underappreciated, underrated, undermentioned tuning house called Tommy Kyra. If you're deep into the JDM world, you know these guys. But for those of you who don't, Tommy Kyra is responsible for some of the most understated and just cool tuner cars out there. They had a really interesting philosophy on how they built their cars. Originally, one of the founders sold AMG and other European sports cars through his dealership in Japan and decided to take that same ethos with domestic Japanese vehicles, and they ended up with some really, really cool stuff. This is a cool story. This was a fun one, really just goofy time with James and Joe. So go check that out. Tommy Kyra on Past Gas, wherever you get your podcasts. Follow the show today. Thank you. Bye. On February 5th, 1966, Roger Penske made his racing debut as a team owner. Roger had been a racing phenom throughout the early 1960s. He drove a NASCAR and Formula One and was even named Sports Illustrated's Driver of the Year in 1961. But instead of sitting behind the wheel for the inaugural Rolex 24 at Daytona, Penske was managing a 1966 Corvette Stingray and a trio of young drivers. Roger Penske Racing's debut was going pretty well, until his team's Corvette T-boned a slower competitor in the middle of the night session. However, even though the front of the car was gone, including the headlights, it could still run. Officials told Roger he'd have to retire the car without proper illumination, but failure was not an option for Roger Penske, and nothing was going to spoil his first race as an owner. A perfectionist with a compulsive need to win, Roger instructed his team to grab two flashlights and some duct tape. This car was in a get back on the track. How did Roger Penske go from racing to running a team? Why did he walk away from driving at the height of his career? What is it that makes Penske one of the winningest team owners in racing history? Today on Past Gas, it's the story of the captain himself, Roger Penske. Past Gas Podcast. Proper illumination sounds tight. 
proper illumination. Yeah, sounds like the name of a creative agency. Yes, yeah. Oh, guys, we got an RFP from Proper Illumination. They go to their office. It's a concrete floor. There's a bunch of succulents everywhere. Succulents everywhere. There's a slide that no one uses. (laughs) There's a slide that goes up only. (laughs) Yeah, you're like, how'd they afford that? It costs like $50,000 a month to run the pneumatic system for the upslide, <laughs> but we just landed Adidas, so. <laughs> Welcome to Past Gas, everybody. My name is Nolan Sykes. I'm joined by my two co-hosts. Uh, we got James Pumphrey. Well, there. would you look at the mug on that one? And uh, Joe Weber. What's up, Wink Wink Nation? No snappy intro for me this week. No, you're just playing with a set of calipers that have been left on the table for for whatever the reason. measuring kind, not this the is, breaking kind. I was measuring stuff for the tiny V8 that we're building. Oh, nice! I see. Uh, the guys are putting together the world's smallest V8, and we're putting it into an uh, RC car, and it's taking longer than building a real. Turns car. out, yeah. it's harder to build something smaller than bigger. It's the tiniest V8, but the biggest headache. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Okay, All Roger right. Penske. Yeah, talking about Roger Penske, a name you've probably heard a lot if you're into motorsport. Or if you've or uh, moved stuff with trucks. <laughs> it's you ever the same moved guy. before? I have. Yeah. yeah, I'm on my 18th place in Los Angeles. I've helped James move, I think, four or five times in the last two years. Can't stand still. Can't stand still. <laughs> anyway, uh, yeah, so let's get into it. Roger Penske, I don't really know too much about him, to be honest. I listened to like a business podcast with him. I thought it was going to be more racing. Look, you don't have a million different racing teams without making a ton of money. I would like to hear some business tips from Roger Penske. I'm going to go seek that out. After well, we do he's this. got some really good quotes. He just seems like a like well-rounded, not jerk. Uh, oh, wow. That's surprising from a racing team. Yeah. Um, his dad helped him out in the beginning, uh, but he was like, couldn't really afford it. And and he was like, his dad was like, oh, he was retired. He used $50,000 of his retirement fund to help start hmm. the racing team. And, okay. he, and he was like. Okay, so his dad. Yeah. Cool. And it was funny when you said not jerk, producer Christina was over in the back laughing and shaking her head. So I'm I'm sure we're going to we're going to get into it. We're going to learn more about Roger Penske and maybe Is that's what we're trying really to learn today. a jerk and I he just like bamboozled me. Well, we're going to find out. Well, his dad was like if you if it doesn't work out, I uh, I got to go back to work, you know. Jesus. And so that was his motivation for like really succeeding. I got to <laughs> That is pretty fun motivation. It's like, "All right, I can run this race team." Yeah. Or my dad's gonna be a Walmart greeter, and that Walmart greeter job would uh, would fund the racing team. Yeah. Oh, uh, just some some business before we get into the story here. Uh, we won a Signal Award for Ooh. best road trip podcast, but I uh, would like to thank everybody. We are a Signal Award winning podcast. Yeah, we swept the Siggies this year. Uh, I'd really like to thank. Seriously, though, um, thank you to everybody who voted for us. Yeah, thank you. Thanks to everyone who's reached out over the years and uh, subscribed and. All that jazz. Yes. Jazz. It's about the notes you don't play. <laughs> Let's talk about Roger Penske. Roger Penske was born in Shaker Heights, Ohio in 1937 to Jay and Martha Penske. Jay Penske was an engineer turned executive and a towering figure in young Roger's life. He was just really tall. Really tall. And Roger, at one point, was a baby. <laughs> His father instilled in Roger an unstoppable work ethic that inspired Roger's lifelong motto, Effort equals results. <laughs> He's not Macho Man Randy Savage. <laughs> That's how he talks. That was a recording of him we played, as always. Jay Penske also gave Roger his greatest gift, 
a love of racing. When he was 14, Roger went to an IndyCar race with his dad, where young Penske caught the driving bug. That might have been the turning point for me, Roger said. IndyCar racing and just going fast. Cars became an obsession for Roger. He wanted to be around them in any way he could. Shortly after the fateful IndyCar race with his dad, Roger began working at a gas station and later at a foreign car dealership. Working at the dealership allowed him to take the cars out for test drives, even though he didn't have a license. And we all know, letting young mechanics drive test drive fast cars, great idea. Did you see that Mark IV Supra that had just gotten tuned yeah. and that mechanic was taking it out on a drive and just flipped it seven times, got thrown from the car, was fine, was uninjured. Yeah, landed on railroad tracks. <laughs> Pretty crazy. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But Roger never did like working for someone else. He started buying junk cars, fixing them up, and selling them for profit out of the family garage. Jay Penske encouraged these interests, emotionally and financially. Oh, cool. Roger said of his father, He and I always had this pact. If I needed 10 or $20, my dad said, You earn half and I'll support you with the balance. As naturally happens when you're building cars. As it naturally his happens. His dad like, was like a 401k of cash. As it naturally happens when you're building cars, you want to start racing them, too. Roger started out drag racing at the Akron Drag Strip. Back in the mid-50s, I took my dad's Buick there and wore out the transmission, Roger said. I remember he went to drive it to work on Monday, and he couldn't get it out of the garage. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, young guy, uh, his parents helping him out substantially with buying and racing cars. Going pro became more of a reality once young Penske left the house. In college, he bought a 57 Corvette out of a GMAC payment book and used it as his and used it as his competition for hill races. However, Penske's name would really be made with his infamous Xerix Special. The story of this car cemented Penske's commitment to winning and let's say ingenuity when it came to following the rules. Uh, he's a cheater, <laughs> which I like. In the 1961 Formula One U.S. Grand Prix, Walt Hankson crashed his Cooper T-53 on lap 14 and was forced to retire from the race. His team owner, Briggs Cunningham, then sold that wrecked mess to none other than young Roger Penske. Side note, Briggs Cunningham, the guy who invented racing stripes. Really? Mm -hmm. Oh. Wow. Yeah. That was like the first wheelhouse, right? One of the first ones. Yeah. Whoa. Penske replaced the body on the wrecked car, swapped out the engine for a 2.75 liter Coventry Climax FTF <laughs> straight four engine, added basic headlights and a horn, and installed a hidden second seat in the left side of the car. When you hear that straight four fire up, boy, you just <laughs> By definition, Penske had turned a Formula One wreck into a street car. Hmm. Penske drove the number six cherry red Xerix special all the way to the 1962 USAC Road Racing Championship title. Wow. The USAC Road Racing Championship Series folded in 1963, but Rogers' love for the Xerix special stayed strong. He brought it to the SCCA National Sports Car Championship, where he drove it to two quick victories. Roger entered the car in several other races, but eventually outgrew the special. Not to say that it wasn't still special. <laughs> It was later bought by another legend, a guy we like to call Bruce McLaren, who went on to his own victories behind its wheel. That's Dude, they're all just hanging out at the same bar. You yep. know what I mean? Eating chicken wings. Yep. Oh, they got 
garlic parmesan now? How are they, Bruce? I don't know. I think I'd stay with... I'll get buffalo next time. (laughs) (laughs) Roger saw success in practically every ride he raced in. From sports cars, finishing second in the 1963 12 Hours of Sebring in a 3-liter Ferrari 250 GTO, to stock cars winning the Riverside 250 driving a Pontiac Catalina for owner Ray Nichols. In 1965, 28-year-old Roger was offered a rookie test for the Indy 500, but Roger stepped away from what might have been the pinnacle of his driving career, not because he didn't think he could win, but because it interfered with his business interests. Hmm. You see, Roger Penske was selling cocaine. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's funny that you say that because he was uh, became friends with DeLorean. Oh, cool. Roger Penske knew that a life behind the wheel couldn't be his entire life. So with that in mind, he decided to purchase a Chevrolet dealership in Pennsylvania, of all places. Interestingly enough, he was only able to purchase the dealership because of his father, Mm. who brought there, you earn half, I'll give you the other agreement, into Roger's adulthood. So that business podcast, did he mention, like, have your dad give you half the money for everything? He did. Yeah, he said, if you... If you need 20 bucks, I'll give you 10. That's cool. Yeah. But then he also said, no one's ever going to give you a good car. No one's going to give you a team. You got to go out and get it. But So you, first you were, off, call your dad. Yeah, call your dad. All right. And then he'll go get it for you. Drafting an email right now to roger at Penske.com. Oh, I thought you were going to email your dad. I need, <laughs> dear Roger, I need $100,000. Let's go, Brandon. Let's <laughs> <laughs> but a dealership isn't cheap. Uh, he was retired, and he went into his savings account, Penske said. Jay lent Roger $50,000 to f- open his first business. Hmm. That left the other 50000 Roger needed. And being a race car driver slash business owner wasn't all it was cracked up to be. No bank wanted to loan money to a man regularly driving at high speeds around tight turns. <laughs> They didn't know it was called racing. They called it was. They thought it was just driving at high speeds around tight turns. Mm-hmm. Speaking of living in a bunch of places, one of my landlords uh, in a, a place I lived in a few years ago, like, didn't believe that I made money on the internet. <laughs> he's like, "So, your job is on the internet?" Huh? I was like, "Yeah." He's like, "How do you do that?" Like, I don't know how to say this, man. So Roger gave up his spot in the Indy 500 tryout and retired from racing. Mario Andretti went on to take the tryout in Roger's place, reached the podium, and won Rookie of the Year. Hmm. At first glance, you'd think this wouldn't square with Roger's win-it-all-cost mentality. Why would someone who fell in love with racing because of IndyCar give up a chance to race in its top competition? Well, because Roger had his eyes on a larger prize. Reflecting on this time, Roger said, My dad gave me that check, and he said, If you lose this, I'll go back to work. At that point, there was never a question in my mind. I was not racing. I had to be focused on business. So it was a pretty easy decision, the right decision. This really doesn't, I don't like him. I mean, I don't know. It's Yeah, he's got got, got the money, and then he's going to make more money. Cool. You know? If my dad was like, hey, I'm going to give you this loan, but if you f*** it up, I'd have to go back to work. I'd be like, I'll figure it out. That doesn't sound like a responsible thing to do. I'll figure it out. Don't worry about it. Thank you, though. But you know, like his dad was probably had more money that he that he was letting off on. You know, his he probably didn't ever have to go to back to work if he was an executive. Yeah, that's true. 
At only 28 years old, Roger was busy building a successful business, yet still couldn't turn away from racing altogether. Less than a year after stepping away from the wheel, Penske returned to racing, but this time as a team manager. His first move was to hire his personal mechanic, Carl Kainhofer, full-time. The Austrian-born Kainhofer had worked for Roger the Racer on a part-time basis and seemed like a natural fit for Roger Penske Racing. He was selling him candles before, and then he became... This is a callback to something that was not recorded, but <laughs> we're talking about Toto Wolf, the team manager for Mercedes. Started off as a little boy in Austria selling candles. <laughs> but where would they get the cash to start the operation? Having already dug into his father's retirement savings, <laughs> Roger knew he'd have to turn somewhere else. Using his newfound business connections, Roger partnered with Sunoco Oil to sponsor his team. Even though this would be the first of a long line of corporate partnerships, none of them would ever have a commercial quite like this one. They're moving, they're moving. People in the know. They're playing golf. They're playing golf. Guy driving a race car. Oh, yeah. Here's Roger Penske, nice. golfer, racing driver, automotive expert. He moved to Sonoma cool. for custom. He's 28 in that? Yeah, people in the like 50s, 50s looked old. Yeah. yeah. This is six, well, this is 67, so he's older. He's 30 at this point. That's an old-looking 30-year-old. Well, I mean, they all drink bourbon and ate steak for lunch, as James likes to say, but they also smoked a lot. I tried custom blending. Nothing else was good enough. Once I tried custom blending, nothing else was good enough. Nice Camaro, man. 67 Camaro. Dang, that race car is sick. He's got a good swing. When you stop at Sunoco, you go with confidence. Wow. Hmm. That's cool. Yeah. Like That's uh, part of my day. <laughs> <laughs> and it's only 10.52. Yeah, I know. Can't wait for the rest. It's only down from here, buddy. No way. This brings us back to our opening at the 1966 Rolex 24 at Daytona. 29-year-old Roger and Kane Hofford enter their number six Sunoco Chevy Corvette Stingray with a driving rotation of vetted SCCA racers. Yeah, old Dick Goldstrand. <laughs> Dick Goldstrand. Dick Goldstrand, <laughs> yes. George Winterstein. George Winterstein. <laughs> and Beefy Ben Moore. Big old beefy boy Ben Moore. Just eating them denty Moore stews <laughs> in the car in the pits. Roger and Kane Hoffer built the Stingray with a 427 cubic inch engine, that Chevy 427 baby, but told their drivers to keep the car at 6,000 RPMs to increase its longevity, even though they could have opened up a little bit more. A little bit more. Probably like 6,800 RPM. The Stingray was off to a great start. It averaged 98 miles per hour around the circuit, and then had its dramatic middle-of-the-night fender bender. But Roger wasn't about to have his first race end in disaster. Roger's team duct-taped those flashlights onto the front of the car and sent it back into the race in the middle of the night. And despite the hiccup, the Stingray crossed the finish line 12th overall and won the GT class by 27 laps. Whoa. What an entrance for Roger, the manager. You know, when we teased that story at the top, I was like, that's pretty badass. But then, now that I know he wasn't driving and he was just the boss, and he was like, duct tape flashlights on it and get the hell back out there. <laughs> it's a lot less tough on his part. Mm. High on their success, Roger Penske Racing then entered the 12 hours of Sebring, where they also won the GT class in their Stingray. You know, Sebring now is like a very tough race because the track itself is so beat to 
after all these decades, but yeah. back then it was probably like a much in much better condition. Probably. Hmm. I was going to say that's a tough race, but now I'm not so sure. Yeah, probably <laughs> easy. Anyway, uh, while most <laughs> would consider winning their class twice a massive success for a new team, Roger needed more. He needed a dominant driver, yeah. someone to be the face of his franchise. Ben Moore. <laughs> Denty Moore. Roger Moore. He needs someone ambitious, smart, and fast. Enter a 29-year-old speedster named Mark Donahue. Ooh, sounds fast. <laughs> Donahue had driven for Ford at Le Mans, 24 hours of Daytona and 12 hours of Sebring, and earned podiums in the latter, too. But Donahue was also an engineer and Brown University graduate. Mm -hmm. Who is this guy? Jeremiah? <laughs> a fast driver with a head for the game? He sounded a lot like Roger. And a lot like Jeremiah <laughs> Burton, host on Donut Media. We have a YouTube channel, if you don't already know. And Jeremiah's on it. He's smart and handsome and tall. He's and the he's, Roger Penske of Donut. He's an affluent, fun-loving cowboy. Roger met Mark Donahue at the funeral of Donahue's mentor, Walt Hangston, who was killed during testing for Le Mans. Roger, who had seen the young driver in action at Daytona and Sebring, offered him a race-by-race -race contract for some upcoming Can-Am and USRRC races. Donahue joined Team Penske in 1966 and quickly proved he was built to the Penske standard. Ooh. His first major victory for Penske came during the U.S. Road Racing Championship round at Kent Pacific Raceway in a Lola T70 and it only went up from there. I'm going to guess that Kent Pacific Raceway has probably been built over by a housing project. I think probably. there's probably a Pier 1 on it right now. Definitely <laughs> a Pier 1. A home goods. I'm built like someone who would take something out of a Penske truck, the back. That's actually still there. Hmm. Anyway. The Donahue and Penske connection ran deep, with Roger saying that Mark became almost like a brother to me. This was <laughs> this is, after seeing that commercial, I know how he talks now, like that. Well, he's he's old now. Yeah, but we don't know how old he was when he made these quotes. Yeah, that's true. This was an early <laughs> lesson for Roger. If he was going to build a successful team, he was going to need the best people. Team Penske spent their days working in a garage in Newton Square, Pennsylvania, of all places. Roger leased the one-bay garage on Winding Way in 1966 and soon leased out the second bay. Hmm. It was the first home of Team Penske, and sometimes it literally was a home, as Mark Donahue often slept in the small apartment in front of the garage. Because Penske didn't pay him well. With Donahue behind the wheel, Roger Penske Racing really started to establish itself as a commanding presence on the track. Roger, who attended military camp for three summers, had his team wearing coveralls and crew cuts while they drove the cleanest, crispest cars on the grid. We just wanted to be different, Penske said. <laughs> the preparation, the way we looked, was key. And they looked intimidating. Nothing scarier than a guy with a crew cut. Yeah. Well, honestly, Actually, that's I think true. you're being sarcastic, but it's pretty true. Of course, they were also winning. Starting in Trans Am in 1967, Team Penske brought the new Chevrolet Camaro onto the track, offering a challenge to Carroll Shelby's Mustang and Bud Moore's Mercury Cougars. Wait a minute. Are these the Navy? Oh, okay. Yeah, dude. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, dude. Oh, yeah. Okay. yeah, they're the Navy ones, Now dude. you're getting it. Yeah. Getting a handle on the Camaros in the first place was a journey, as Roger and his team experimented with their new oh, ride. Oh, shit, dude. It had brake problems, suspension issues, and handled like a friggin' box guys 
These are the Sunoco Camaros. The These Sunoco are the navy Camaros. blue with the yellow wheels. Yeah. If you probably unlocked this car in Forza a couple years ago, uh, yeah, okay. I know where we're at now. Yeah, so these things were real dog crap. Okay. <laughs> but Roger was determined to work night and day until he got the car into winning shape. He soon learned that his competitors were acid-dipping parts of their cars to get a lighter experience overall. Does so, that just take like a millimeter or less? It's like so minuscule, but it does add up. Yeah. So Penske took it to the extreme, dipping so much that the Camaro became known as the lightweight car. Roger also reached out to his connections at GM and was able to bring their cars to the Milford Proving Grounds, gathering valuable intel on how to improve the ride. You can always tell a Milford man. Yeah, always. What are they? What are the? What signifies them? I mean, that was just the Arrested Development. Yeah, but just I don't know. explain a Milford man to me. I don't know. It's a joke from a sitcom from <laughs> from 10, 12, 20 years, years ago. ago. Now. Team Penske lightened their suspension springs by half, added four degrees of negative camber to improve. Ooh. That's stanced. Yeah. Uh, to improve weight transfer, acid dipped like crazy, just <laughs> like Joe and I did last summer, <laughs> and won their first Trans Am race at Marlboro by a full two laps. Damn. They finished the year out strong, though Jerry Titus eventually won in his Mustang that year. Jerry Titus. Jerry Jerry Titus. Titus. Chris Titus's dad. Is he really? No, I don't know. He might be. Maybe <laughs> Titus is like into cars. What yeah. happened to him? I don't know. I always liked him. Did you? Yeah. He, he like filled the gap between Tim Allen and uh, Dax Shepard yeah. as like a comedian who liked cars. Yeah. yeah. His dad is Ken Titus, not Jerry uh, Titus. Dang <laughs> <laughs> we'll get back to more past guests, but right now, a word from our sponsors. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because, you know, if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish. Or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps, because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Team Penske and Mark Donahue came back with a vengeance in 1968 and 69. Nice. They won the manufacturer title both years, and Donahue took home the informal driver championship both years as well, winning 10 races, including eight in a row in 68 and six races in 69. Nice. Then Roger Penske shocked the world in 1970 when, after proven success with Chevrolet and his own connection to the brand as a dealer, Team Penske traded out their Camaros for the AMC Javelin. Oh, yeah, dude. Uh, when we were at Sonoma last year for the NASCAR race, the day before, there was a historical Trans Am race. Oh, that's, that's cool. And there was a Javelin in it, and it looked yeah. sick. Was it nice. tearing it up? Uh, it was doing pretty good, okay. but it was like mostly 
you know, Camaros and Mustangs. Yeah. But uh, like the Javelin just looks weird. It looks like a car yeah. from Dexter's Laboratory. It does, <laughs> like a weird cartoon. Roger had proven his team on the track, but thought Chevrolet was taking too much credit. It had been his team that had put the work in to get their cars into racing shape, and Roger wanted to prove he could win in anything. With the Javelin, Roger saw an opportunity to make his own mark. That's sick, man. And make his own mark is what he did indeed. Team Penske won in the Javelin, too. Donahue was one point shy of a three-peat driver championship, but Parnelli Jones edged him out in a Bud Moore Ford Mustang for the 1970 car. Really Cup. just edged him out, huh? Just edged him out like Sting. <laughs> <laughs> um, if I remember correctly, they... The the javelin was also kind of like a Camaro situation where the first season that they ran them, the javelin was like really uh, unreliable and just AMC did a lot of things differently than uh, GM. So they just had to figure out a bunch of stuff. And then once it worked, the javelin became like the most dominant car of Trans Am. Yeah. This is a really cool livery if you guys. Well, and again, like this. Bud Moore used to drive for Penske. And I like to imagine that he was like. Hey, hell of a season, you son of a bitch. We'll be back next year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and back next year, they were. <laughs> By 1971, Donahue and Team Penske smashed the competition, winning eight out of ten races and another Trans Am championship, beating the Camaros along the way. Roger wasn't satisfied with being the best. He wanted to prove that if you had him in your corner, you could be the best, too. I think they, like, completely re-engineered the Javelin as well. Really? Like, on the outside, it looked like a Javelin, but underneath, it was, like, very similar to the Camaro. They just, like, they copied the suspension and everything. Got it. They was also making bowling balls and motorcycles. <laughs> if you want to learn more about that, check out our Harley episode that just aired recently. It's a hell of a ride. <laughs> <laughs> Pun intended. Pinnacle of racing to Roger was Indianapolis. Team Penske had their Indy 500 debut in 1969, nice, with a turbo offy powered Lola T152. Donahue qualified fourth and was closing in on second for most of the race before the Magneto failed. A pit stop took him out of the podium, and he finished seventh, but still managed to win Rookie of the Year. Nice. But Roger and Donahue wouldn't be satisfied until they won the whole thing. The big shebang. The shabizzle, if you will. The grand dance. The grig old Tootsie Roll. <laughs> it wasn't until three years later in 1972, on lap 188, that Donahue in a McLaren M16 took the lead in the Indy 500 and never looked back. Roger and Donahue finally got their checkered flag, and Donahue set an Indy 500 speed record that wouldn't be broken for another decade. In the, the podcast I listened to, he went to the 35th Indy 500 when he was a teenager. Okay. And they just had the 100th mm -hmm. anniversary of the Indy 500. And he's been to every single one <laughs> since the 35th. Wow. That's like crazy. 65 Indy 500. Yeah. I've never been to anywhere 65 times. You've been here. Yeah, I've been here 65 you times. You better be. <laughs> <laughs> That's 32,500 miles of Indy. Whoa. Wow. That's some quick math on your part. Thank, I did it in my head. Yep. <laughs> we, hear, we hear the iPhone lock <laughs> sound. You guys couldn't see me, but I was doing like yeah. uh, weird finger stuff yeah. and my his eyes, eyes glazed over. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. He started speaking in tongues. Yeah, I take this pill called Limitless <laughs> <laughs> by Bradley Cooper. <laughs> and uh it makes me smart as smart as hell. So <laughs> what if you could take a pill and then everyone would talk like Ryan Reynolds all the time? Would you take I that pill? I think I would do that. <laughs> like <laughs> yeah, so snarky know. and like fast and <laughs> and like funny what would the better for how <laughs> attractive <laughs> he is, but like not yeah, actually but like funny. Two thousand twelve funny. Yeah. What would the yeah. benefits like, of that like, be? Why would she take Like, this? found success and gave up on growing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Your sense of humor or style. Yeah. Like, oh, Deadpool. So, like, this is just as good as I'm going to get. Yeah. Oh, that hurts. And his arm is, like, chopped off or something. <laughs> <Yeah>. Ow! <laughs> as Team Penske's success is... <laughs> you, Ryan Reynolds. <laughs> yeah, Ryan Reynolds. <laughs> Thanks to our sponsor, Mint Mobile. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Right around with your cool life and your cool wife and everybody likes you. You're so cool and handsome and funny. I want to be friends with Ryan Reynolds, Dak Shepard, John Krasinski, Will Arnett. Oh, man. I want to hang out with all those guys. Imagine the dinners. Imagine. Oh the Dude, God. I can't. I don't have to imagine the dinners. That's all they talk about yeah. on Smartless. <laughs> French Stewart hangs out with them, too? Yes. That French is- Stewart hangs out with them? Paul Reiser. All oh, the oh, guys. <laughs> oh man! Oh, dang! I bet uh, Sinbad shows. <laughs> oh man, Sinbad's not doing great right now. He's not. No. Oh. Why? He's got a lot of health problems. Oh, no. damn it! Look, Sinbad. I hope you get better. Ryan Reynolds. I hope you f- choke. Shut <laughs> up! You don't talk about Ryan Reynolds like that. He's one of my top five best friends, along with Chris. Kraz. <laughs> That's what we call Krasinski. Oh. <laughs> call him Kraz. That's his name on my phone. Krez. Will Arnett, who fat shamed me on set one time. <laughs> uh, but I forgive him because he's just looking out for me because he's my friend. So I'm best friends with John Kraz, Krasinski, yeah. Will Arnett. Jason Bateman. Jason Bateman yeah. is one of my besties. Ryan Reynolds, French Stewart, Dak Shepard. Those are my f- best friends. That's the wrecking crew. Those right are there. my best friends. <laughs> if Paul Reiser heard you leave him off that list, dude, Paul knows that he's like not just my friend; he's like my brother. Oh, okay, big bro, Paul shouts, <laughs> "Love you, Rise Dog." Cream rises to the top. That's an inside joke. Steve Zahn's coming over for dinner next week, dude. Yeah, yeah. Dude, I'm excited. Yeah. I haven't I seen him see. since the, him and Brecken Meyer got in. Brecken, dude. <laughs> <laughs> And that handsome guy from Suits. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Skeet Ulrich was there. <laughs> All right. Let's I'm having dinner with Meghan Markle, uh, Prince Harry, and uh, Michael... Sh- Sh- Michael <laughs> Shannon? <laughs> Michael Shannon. Yeah. Uh, that's a fun... <laughs> yeah. They're coming over. Where are you going? Uh, my house. I am sous vide a lamb. <laughs> <laughs> In your bathtub. Yeah. <laughs> A whole lamb at 120 <laughs> degrees. <laughs> Just stinks. It's going to take a week, and then yeah. I'm going to reverse sear it on this coal pit I built in my backyard. As Team Penske's successes grew, Roger's empire did as well. And that's no coincidence. That's no cat. Roger treated Team Penske as advertising for his expanding dealership business. In Roger's opinion, quote, The Indy 500 is a four-hour race, probably one of the most watched racing shows in the world. And when you lead that race, or win 15 times, like I have, it's a tremendous impact on your brand. Winning is free advertisement, and with victory came confidence in the Penske name. It's not an exaggeration to say that Team Penske was built on the partnership of Roger and Mark. 
Donahue spent his entire racing career with his good friend, Roger Penske, and the two shared in many successes. Their dominance in Can-Am was so ubiquitous that the Porsche 917-30 Donahue drove was dubbed the Can-Am Killer. But while Team Penske's influence spread, Mark Donahue's demeanor diminished. After the tragic 1973 Indianapolis 500, which led to the deaths of a pit crew worker and two drivers, including Donahue's friend, David Swede Savage, Mark decided to retire from racing. He continued to work for Roger as president of Team Penske, but his mood hardly improved. As Team Penske looked to make roads in Formula One, Roger managed to convince his friend to come back as a driver, and he didn't have to try very hard. Everyone could tell that Mark had retired too early and that he didn't seem satisfied with his managerial role. So, in 1975, Donahue was a 38-year-old rookie in Formula One, the oldest driver on the grid. Like, that was, like, sad enough. Yeah. Be like, yeah, I don't know. I, sh- I guess I'll just race again. Yeah. And then it's like, yeah, I'll quit because my friends died. I'm going to yeah. come back. Luckily, everything worked out. Sadly, during that Formula One season, Mark Donahue was practicing with the March 751 when a semi-deflated tire pitched his car into the fencing. The car flew over a barrier, killing a worker and injured another. Donahue's helmet hit a fence post, knocking him out. Though he regained consciousness, he began to complain of headaches and collapsed. He had emergency brain surgery to stop the bleeding, but tragically died two days later in the hospital. His partner and friend, Roger Penske, was at his side. Damn. It affected the whole team, Roger said. Losing a driver is something you can't replace. He lost his life doing what he wanted to do, which is one thing, but it took us a long time to get over that. Though Team Penske would go on to win their first Formula One race a year later with John Watson driving a Penske PC-4 slash Ford at the Austrian Grand Prix, they never had any further successes and withdrew from Formula One competition. The loss of Mark Donahue had its ripples through the whole Team Penske crew. As Roger said, Mark was so key in the operation when he was there, it's something we had to rebuild. That took a couple of years. He was a partner, he was a friend, and a critical piece of the foundation of our race team. Roger had lost his brother-in-arms and turned his attention stateside. With the trauma of Formula One behind them, Team Penske refocused on IndyCar. And their new drivers, Tom Sneva and... Mario Andretti. Mm, who's that guy? Uh, I've seen him in his underpants. Yes. Penske calls him Mario. Does he? Yeah, he says, my friend Mario Andretti. Wow. I've still seen him in his underpants. <laughs> the pair worked together well and gave Team Penske its first 1-2 finish at Pinocchio in 1977. But as we've learned, Roger is a guy who values loyalty and commitment and with Mario Andretti racing part-time in IndyCar and Formula One, Roger looked for a replacement. He wanted someone who would be 100% in on Penske. And that's where Rick Mears came in. Rick came from an off-roading background and had always dreamt of racing in IndyCar, though he hadn't had any luck making inroads. Then on a motorcycle trip through Colorado, he met the man who would change everything. Roger heard that Rick was looking for a contract and gave him a tryout. After seeing his speed and ambition on display, Roger offered him a six-race contract. Rick turned that six-race contract into a dozen years of racing dominance. A little over a decade into his racing business, Roger had hit pay dirt with another top-tier driver. From 1979 to 1991, Rick won Roger three IndyCar championships and four of Team Penske's 18 Indy 500 wins. I never understood pay dirt. Pay dirt? It's uh, like oil, I assume. 
Oh, like oil bubbles up from the dirt? Yeah. This is pay dirt. We've hit pay dirt. Oh, look, it's pay dirt. Hell freaking, I got your milkshake. <laughs> I got you a milkshake. I got you a milkshake. <laughs> Do you like banana milkshakes? <laughs> <laughs> These milkshakes are gas. <laughs> this milkshake's making me thirsty. Have you had these milkshakes? They're gas. <laughs> One thing we've got to reiterate about Roger Penske is that he demands excellence. A raging perfectionist and a famous workhorse, he still lives by his famous motto of effort equals results. Daddy's money plus effort equals <laughs> As recently as 2016, when Roger was 79 years old, he was logging 17-hour work days. Oh, my God. Okay, that's, that is a lot of work. That's a lot of effort. And those are the kinds of hours he expects from everyone on his team. Is a business lunch work? Does he count that as work? Does yeah, what, travel count like as like work? Why not hire an assistant if you're doing 17-hour yeah, days? Yeah, you should work 17 hours a day. Roger's expectations can often be brutal. For example, in 1991, 22-year-old driver Paul Tracy qualified 7th on the grid at the Grand Prix of Long Beach, something that got Team Penske's attention. Roger's office sent the Toronto-based Tracy an invitation to meet with him in Detroit. The invite was sent at 4 p.m. for an 11 p.m. meeting that night. Paul and his dad were forced to scramble to drive to Detroit in time, but they got there in time. In the meeting, Roger offered Paul a contract on the spot. Paul and his father wanted to have their lawyers look it over, but that's not 100% commitment in Roger's eye. Sign it now or the offer's withdrawn. Roger told him. <laughs> I can pick up the phone right now and call a dozen drivers who would sign it on the spot. Okay, so do it. So Tracy signed. And a few months later, when he broke his leg driving for Penske at Michigan International Speedway, he said he didn't get any f- sympathy from Roger. He'd better heal quickly. Roger said, <laughs> he's got work to do. Oh, my God. Okay. You might call it ruthless, but that's business as usual for Roger. If a broken leg stands in the way of another win, then the young driver better heal up fast. Roger this guy sucks. <laughs> Roger expects great things from himself and everyone who works for him. Hey, why don't you just get your dad to heal half of your leg? <laughs> <laughs> the bloke that's driving the track or cleaning the wheels is just as important as the driver. That's not true. And that's a way to treat a driver. Speaking of drivers, Roger has strict criteria for who gets to wear the Penske name. He requires proven track records, guys who know the technical stats of the cars they're driving. Buzz cuts. And of course, he needs commercial viability with sponsors. This is summed up as smart winners with markability. Roger sees sponsorships as both an art form and a partnership. It was the Sunoco deal that kicked off Team Penske in 1966, it's been a huge part of where he's placed his attention since. There was a, kind of an alarming quote in that podcast last night that was like, he was like, uh, at least all the trains in Germany ran on time. Oh, my God. <laughs> no. It wasn't that bad, but it was like he had to turn off his humanness. But it was it, the way he phrased it was like, I had to stop putting emotion into business decisions. Well, that's true, probably. Yeah, but it's still like it comes through as, Heal your leg quick so you can yeah. put in more hours. It's kind of the same thing we talked about with Alan Prosta like two weeks ago or whenever. Yeah. Uh, it's like this yeah, is another guy who's only driven by results rather yeah. than soft skills. Yes. Yeah. Uh-huh. And as a result, we're not really liking this guy. No, I don't like this guy. We'll be right back with more of this story. But first, a word from our sponsors. 
1991, Miller Brewing, a major sponsor of Rogers IndyCar team, asked if he'd be willing to get back into the stock car game. Rogers' two favorite things are winning and making money. I can relate. So he saw this as a chance to do both. The Penske crew had flirted with NASCAR back in 1972 when Mark Donahue debuted in an AMC Matador. Ooh. I'm surprised Ferrari hasn't released a Matador. Oh, like a Tame the Bull. Yeah. Donahue gave Team Penske their first NASCAR victory a year later at the Riverside 500, but took a hiatus after the 1977 season. It was at the 1979 Penske Christmas party that Don Miller convinced 50-year-old Roger to get back into NASCAR and... He had the perfect driver in mind. Rusty Wallace had just won Rookie of the Year in the USAC Stock Car Series and was ready to make the leap to NASCAR. Though Roger kept calling his new driver Dusty Wallace, the young man's track record <laughs> in USAC satisfied Roger's requirements as a proven winner. Was that a dig or was that yeah, just him being an old guy? It's the same, you know, same, uh, same genre. It's like part of the dirt and grime family, you know, rusty, dusty, dusty. musty. <laughs> Rusty's first race in NASCAR and for Roger was at the Atlanta 500. The team took out the number 16 Chevrolet Caprice. Crusty. <laughs> <laughs> it's but, like I, there's a families of words that all kind of sound the same and all kind of mean all, the same thing, yeah. like Volt, Jolt, and Bolt. Oh, wow. I've been thinking about those kind of word groups lately. Forever. Yeah. <laughs> I bet it's all bit like Latin. Like sucrose, delto, like everything with the O's is sugar. Yeah. The team took out the number 16 Chevy Caprice, but it wasn't all roses. The engine was running hot, and we was wondering if this thing was going to be able to run at 500 miles, said Wallace. Not before the race, we were able to get a motor. The guys went to work putting in the new engine, and we lined up and raced with it the next day and finished second. Wow. It was really kind of like something out of a movie or something, you know? I'll like, who's yeah. starring Dak Shepard, <laughs> uh, Kaczynski. Uh, I dropped my wrench. We Two people bent down to pick it up. We bumped our heads. Bumped heads. That was the meat cute. <laughs> and then I'm, all of a sudden, I'm married to Emily Blunt. <laughs> <laughs> John Kraz didn't like that one <laughs> bit. did not like that, but he was directing, so he was cool. He was, he was cool. <laughs> He's more of a director now. <laughs> he really cut his teeth. You know, The Office was his film school. <laughs> Roger was surprised by the quick success of his new driver until the next run. Rusty wound up finishing 14th in a Monte Carlo at the National 500 in Charlotte, and that was not up to the Penske standard. One of the toughest things about that year was talking with Roger after the race in Charlotte when he told me I should go get some more experience and that he hoped we would get a chance to work together again down the road. What sticks in my racing veins is not the wins, it's the disappointments. Roger said, maybe that's why the man tries not to be disappointed. Lucky for Roger, Rusty had more than earned his stripes throughout the 80s, taking home Rookie of the Year honors in 1984 and winning the Winston Cup Championship twice. Rusty signed his own personal partnership with Miller Brewing in 1990, so when Miller suggested teaming Rusty back with Penske, it was a match made in heaven. I remember I asked Roger if I had enough experience now, and he said, You sure do. Let's go racing. That's all I needed to hear. That's like Mel Blank doing like a Bugs Bunny doing a <laughs> Elmer Fudd impression. <laughs> yeah. And that's all Roger needed, too. 
Rusty managed to earn 39 wins for Team Penske and Miller Brewing between 1991 and 2005 when the driver retired from NASCAR competition altogether. Nice. Despite Rusty's successes in NASCAR, the 90s were a bit of a struggle on the IndyCar side. And remember, it's the disappointments that eat at the perfectionist Penske the most. Going into the Indy 500 in 1995, Roger and Team Penske were feeling good. Teammates Emerson Fittipaldi and Al Unser Jr. had been having great seasons. Unser Jr. had won the Indy 500 the year before and had just finished second in the kart championship. So the team had high hopes for him. But a series of missteps during qualifying would spell disaster for the team. The crew couldn't get the Penske-built PC-23s or PC-24 up to speed. So neither driver even attempted to qualify that first weekend. Desperate to get his drivers into the race, Roger brought a new Reynard chassis to see if that can help. But it didn't. So, he bought a pair of 1994 Lola Mercedes-Benz chassis from Ray Hall Hogan Racing. Those were even slower. Unser's engine then blew during a run that should have qualified him for the race, and Roger himself waved off a Fittipaldi run that could have qualified him. After the shock of not qualifying, Roger said to the press, quote, I've got to take the responsibility for not getting into the race, but a lot of my fellow team owners came up to me and offered me help, and I want to thank them for that from the bottom of my heart. We are not going to buy our way into this race. We had an opportunity to compete on a level playing field, and we did not get the job done. Okay? (laughs) All right. (laughs) Roger never wanted to feel that sting again. The turn of the century was all about hitting milestones for Roger and Team Penske. In 2000, Tim Sindrick was promoted as the new president of Team Penske in the hopes that he could lead the team to win their 100th IndyCar win. What does Cindric sound like? The team hadn't won a race since 1997, Cindric said, when the Cranberries released their second. (laughs) 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 The hire paid off. Penske came back to the Indy 500 in 2001 and won it three years in a row. Nice. That's a turkey. That's a turkey. Them winning is the most memorable thing that happened in 2001 for America. <laughs> Cendric would also lead Team Penske to their first Daytona 500 win in 2008. Again, the most memorable thing to happen in America in 2008. <laughs> in a highly contested final turn, Penske driver Kurt Busch pushed his teammate Ryan Newman into the finish line, winning the race's 50th anniversary in the Charger. Did he actually like push him? Yeah, like Ricky Bobby. Yeah. With successes in NASCAR and IndyCar in the States, Roger wanted to expand his racing kingdom. And his business empire. In order to build the Penske brand in Australia, Roger, now 77 years old, entered the Australian V8 supercar scene in 2014. All right, now I'm interested. Okay, finally, 25 pages in. <laughs> Team Penske partnered with Dick Johnson. Dick Johnson again. The Dale the, the, Earnhardt the same, the same of name. Australia. Uh, both penis. P- my name is Penis Penis. <laughs> my name's Penis Wiener. <laughs> my name's Willie Penis. <laughs> Willie Dong. Uh, and he did what he always did. Invested in the people and the drivers and smoked the competition with 56 wins, 62 poles, and six championships, including... Three consecutive driver's titles with Scott McLaughlin. Dick Johnson on the pole again. <laughs> were it not He's for the feeling p- real cocky. <laughs> were it not for the pandemic, the partnership with Penske and Supercar likely would have created even more championships, but Roger was forced to sell his share in October 2020. Mm. 
He got out pretty quick. Uh, real quick, I, I thought the name Tim Sindrick sounded real familiar. Yeah. And current NASCAR driver Austin Sindrick in the oh. Xfinity Series drives for Team Penske. Wow. Mm. Nepotism much? Oh, I mean, that's a lot of NASCARs. I know. So, I'm yeah. just kidding. Everyone's dad is a racer. If you want to be a race car driver, your dad's got to be your best friend. Yeah. yeah. What does one of the most successful men in the history of motorsport do when he's in his 80s and is nearly won it all? He goes out to win the rest. The 24 Hours of Le Mans is one of the only major victories Team Penske hasn't won. But it's on Roger's bucket list. Well, he better hurry because he's about to kick it. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> Roger himself raced in Le Mans when he was 26 years old alongside teammate Pedro Rodriguez. The pair raced for the North American racing team in a Ferrari 330 TRI LM, the car that had won the year prior. At hour nine, however, an oil line burst while Roger was driving and destroyed the engine. Or as Roger said, I blew it up. <laughs> That's what I say summer, when I got out of the bathroom. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This past summer, Team Penske took an Eureka 07 Gibson LMP2 car shared by Felipe Nasser, Dane Cameron, and Emmanuel Collar to the 24 Hours of Le Mans. And it was consistently in the top three for a good portion of the race, though Team Penske finished fifth overall. But if we've learned anything about Roger Penske, is that he's going to work himself and his team to the bone until they come back even stronger. Oh, yeah, that's how you manage. That's how you manage. You work people to the bone. He's going to rub Dick Johnson to the bone. <laughs> <laughs> Roger Penske has already made his name synonymous with victory in racing, and that legacy will likely last long after he's gone. In January 2020, Penske bought the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, ensuring that his hold on the sport would last. With 18 Indy 500 wins, Team Penske already has the most wins at the world-famous complex. I owned the track on the inside. Now, I'm going to own the track on the outside. <laughs> That's like a the Joker. Joker. Yeah. <laughs> hmm. Roger's career is paved with victories. Some are shows of outright dominance. Others are scrapped together in the face of failure. From his first race as a manager at Daytona to revenge winning the Indy 500 three times in a row after losing out on it in 1995. But Roger Penske is not one to live in the past. If it resurfaces for any reason, it's to serve as a lesson for future successes and fuel his desperation for more and more wins. Winning is the only goal for the captain, at the expense of everything else. Luckily for Roger and everyone else around him, he's really good at winning. Hmm. Sounds like a real piece of shit. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I've always wondered about him, yep. and now I'm just kind of like, huh, okay. Yeah. yeah, it makes sense. The Ryan Reynolds... Of indie, no, he's not. not. You don't talk about Ryan like that. Ryan's great, (laughs) great, great guy. You better not let Blake hear you say stuff like that about her boo. Okay, fine. The Paul Giamatti of no, Paul Giamatti's great. You don't think he's a little bit over the top? (laughs) (laughs) All right, well, that was Roger Penske, but now it's time for some fan mail. This is from Grayson. Hey there, lads of past gas. Big fan here. Been listening since the first episode. The Enzo Ferrari voice had me hooked instantly. Nice. Love the passion you guys have for racing in so many different forms. I race a micro sprint car. It's exactly what it sounds like. And would love to see 
or hear you venture a bit into American dirt oval racing? I would love to. I feel like that. Dirt racing and baseball are like America's contribution to sport, I think. Yeah. yeah. What about basketball? I don't know. who And football. That? American football America. is American. So is basketball. Yeah, but like because this is a car show, I like to lean on dirt oval racing. You know what I mean? Yeah, I'm just saying we invented yeah. like most of the I gotta sports. I got to pretend that I don't watch other sports. Yeah. Okay. Our thing is making up a sport and then crowning us world champions. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, calling for coverage of a kind of niche sport isn't why I'm emailing, though. The Paul Newman episode got me thinking about how there are a lot of other cool racing-based or racer-founded charities. One example is the Victory Junction Camp, which was founded by Kyle Petty, and I believe Paul Newman had a hand in it, too. An episode highlighting a handful of these charities. He had a cool, cool hand in it. A cool hand in nice. it. Cool hand loot. Yes. Uh, 50 eggs. <laughs> An episode highlighting a handful of these charities might be a cool, feel-good episode and would also introduce a lot of racing fans to some cool places to consider donating to. Love what you guys do. Keep making my Monday mornings great. Grayson G. Nice. Thanks for the email, Grayson. Those are some kind words. Let us know if you want us to do an episode on Paul Reiser and his <laughs> contribution to <laughs> racing. Yeah. Uh, if you'd like to hit us up, we're pastgas at donutmedia.com. Maybe we'll read your email on air. We'll think about that charity episode. Uh, thank you very much for listening to Past Gas. Follow the boys at James Pumphrey, at Joji Weber. Follow me at Nolan J. Sykes. If you'd like, big thank you to our producers this week, Christina Felsky and Nick Giamuso. Gavin is uh, out this week. But we had a great writer this week, too, Kyle Rabby. That's right. All right. Uh, Tell a friend, leave a review, and we'll see you next week. Thank you very much for listening. Thanks for that Signal Award, baby. Award winners. Woo. We're moving up 349th to 348th most popular podcast in the world. Let's go. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because, you know, if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish. Or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps, because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.